This is Breaking the Dollar, the podcast that dismantles some of the biggest misconceptions about money. This is a, a monster. Reserve is probably not going to raise the interest rate for likely to get thousand dollars. There's a way for fifty thousand dollars. Presented by Dinsville Coins. Hello and welcome back to Breaking the Dollar. I'm your host, Everett Millman, and today we're going to be picking up our earlier discussion uh, about Bitcoin and why Bitcoin is often considered gold 2.0. But in this part two, I'd like to take sort of a broader view of the entire crypto space because there are way more cryptocurrencies than just Bitcoin. And with how much publicity Bitcoin gets in the mainstream media, or at least it's increasingly getting that kind of attention, I think most of the uninitiated may think that it's the only one of its kind out there. Bitcoin is the oldest and the most expensive cryptocurrency. I would say it's the most trusted one so far. And as I said, it has the most notoriety and kind of a level of awareness in the public eye. But it is far from the only one. In fact, there are over 2,000 other altcoins. They're just other cryptocurrencies. But, I mean, there's even more than that. There's 2,000 that are well-known enough to be tracked and traded and, and whatnot. So it's a pretty broad landscape. There are lots of cryptocurrencies out there. And that begs the question, why? Why isn't there just one? Are they all Bitcoin clones, you might wonder? And you might also be questioning, what makes them different if they, if they aren't clones? Why do we need thousands of cryptocurrencies? You, you don't have that many real currencies. You don't have that many fiat currencies in the world. Now, granted, it's because there's only 200-odd sovereign countries in the world. There's not that many different issuing authorities to have all these different currencies. But you could almost imagine... if things became very local, and and this is just a hypothetical, but it almost is sounding like a good idea in my head, you could imagine all 50 U.S. states might have their own state currency, right? That would devolved currency system were to be adopted all around the world, then yes, it would multiply. You'd have thousands of currencies. So why? Why are there so many cryptos? First of all, there's a concept in, in the crypto space called forking. When a cryptocurrency forks, it's kind of how you'd imagine a fork in a road. It's been traveling along one path. Everyone's been using the same blockchain. And then for whatever reason, a group of developers or miners or stakeholders, you might want to say people who hold a lot of that coin, they decide that they want to go a different direction with either the programming or maybe how the coins are distributed through mining. So a fork is literally a break in the continuity of the blockchain. One group is breaking off and saying, we're starting our own separate but sort of parallel cryptocurrency that up to the point of the fork, they share the same history. They were one and the same, and now they are breaking into two. That's happened several times with the big cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum. They have already spawned many little forked corollaries, you might say. So for Ethereum, you have Ethereum Classic. For Bitcoin, you have Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin SV. So there have been multiple forks that by its nature creates another cryptocurrency. But that's not the only way there are other cryptos. It's not, I don't mean to suggest that all altcoins were once part of Bitcoin and have splintered off. That's only a few. 
most other cryptocurrencies are based on some of the same principles. So the, they're, they're going to use a blockchain to track transactions or activity on the network. They're going to use cryptography, encrypted transmission of information. And they're probably going to have an element of exchange value. So they all share certain qualities. But the reason there are so many cryptocurrencies is that the technology offers these possibilities that go far beyond just a digital currency. It, with Dash, for example, there's a lot of hype about developing apps on the Dash blockchain. They'd be called dApps. And I think most everyone is somewhat familiar with what an app is. You know, it's like a cool little thing on your phone or your device that essentially is, is like a computer program, but in microcosm. So your app will, it, it could do any number of things, but it will offer an interface for you to, to run a program or to access a network. And again, I think maybe I'm kind of wasting my breath going into that because most people have a smartphone. Everybody uses apps now. But think of, think of a cryptocurrency apps as another medium for you to develop these things or for developers to come up with these things. You don't have to buy a expensive device or a or new device to run certain apps on a cryptocurrency network. You just have to have access to it. You can probably tell even from my strained explanation of that there that this is still a growing kind of nascent emerging space. It's not fully developed. There's still a lot of kinks that need to be worked out. There's still a lot of possibilities that need to be explored. But the potential is there. And that's what has so many people excited about these things. On the other hand, one of the reasons there are so many cryptocurrencies is because people don't agree on things all the time, even if you are doing something very similar. So even if, uh, just to pull one example, uh, the crypto Monero, it has this feature of being, I don't want to say untraceable, but being anonymous, being more anonymous even than Bitcoin, because that's one of the calling cards of, of Bitcoin and most cryptocurrencies is that although there is a perfect record of every transaction and you can trace every fraction of a Bitcoin back to every wallet has ever been in, it's anonymous. You can't unmask who those wallet addresses belong to. Monero goes even a step further. All about privacy. It has an added privacy element to it. That's its calling card. That's its... Uh, that's its use case. But it's probably not the only one out there like that. There are other cryptocurrencies that purport to do the same thing or are trying to do something similar. But the developers who came up with it have a different vision. They have a different idea about how to accomplish a similar goal. And that's one of the beauties of cryptocurrencies because it brings in a lot of the innovation and ingenuity that has come out of computer science and information technology and, and programming. It really is applying some of those great innovations to how we think about our monetary system. Like I referenced in an earlier episode, this isn't something that we really need to think about that much to get by day to day. It's outside of our realm of consciousness on most levels. In the same way that the, the fundamentals of rocket science are, you know, or nuclear physics. You might know that's a thing and, and what it has to do with, you know, vaguely, but that doesn't affect your day-to-day -day life. That's for the experts to deal with. 
money to me is a little bit different. Yes, we enjoy the benefits of, of you know, rocket science in ways that maybe we don't appreciate, but money is right in your face. Money is a day-to-day consideration for most of us. So these changes are important for us to you know, keep in mind and to stay aware of so that at the end of this transition period that I think a lot of people are picking up on, a lot of economists and a lot of uh, pundits and commentators are beginning to, you know, issue warnings about we are in a systemic, a period of systemic change. At least we have to be if we don't want another global financial crisis. And then, you know, we, we, we rinse and repeat and do the whole thing over again. I don't think anybody wants that. So to come out on the other side whole to survive the transition period, we really do need to think about some of these fundamentals of money. And cryptocurrency is, is, to me, an excellent entry point for most people because most of us know about as little about that as we do about, you know, actual money, which is to say very little. So it's a decent starting point. You're really not behind the curve, so to speak. But where do we go from here? Where, where is all this cryptocurrency stuff leading us? Because right now it seems pretty chaotic. You know, 2,000. There's 2,000 different cryptocurrencies. How can you pick the winner? You know, you certainly can't be expected to just hold all of them, right? Kind of like my comparison about if every state in the U.S. issued its own currency. You wouldn't want to have to, as a business, keep a certain amount of reserves of every state's dollar or whatever. You wouldn't want to have to have Arizona dollars and California dollars and New York dollars. That would just be too cumbersome. There are inefficiencies in that type of situation, which is why it was kind of a clumsy, clunky hypothetical I was just bringing up for comparison's sake. But the same question or problem plagues the altcoin market. You really just can't be expected to follow 2,000 of them. Even stock indexes usually don't have that many, right? You have the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, it's either 100 or 300 companies listed on the index. Dow Jones is only 30 companies. Um, The only U.S. index that I think is comparable, and this is probably true of most stock indices everywhere in the world, is the Russell 2000, the small cap index. It has 2,000 plus companies, but many of them are only slightly above penny stock status. And the index serves as a way to aggregate all of those different stocks. You don't have that in cryptocurrency yet, as far as I know. Probably partly because of the the regulatory challenges I, I brought up in our last episode when I was talking about if Bitcoin was taxable or not. But the point is that because cryptocurrency is still this developing sector and that it is not fully kind of fleshed out yet, it's hard to regulate and it's hard to know where this all fits in. It's not well developed the way stock markets are, for instance. And even in, within that sector, if you just want to look at an example within global stock markets, it's always said that the U.S. stock market is the biggest and most trusted, I guess you would say, because it's the most mature. So even though stock trading has been a thing in society for so long and has you know, developed rules and all these things over time, one stock market is not necessarily equal to another. So the big example is, is in Shanghai, the Shanghai Composite on the Chinese stock exchange. It's quote-unquote immature. It needs more time to develop. It's still in these early stages where weird things happen (laughs) and normal dynamics don't always take hold yet. So that's the way I think 
it would be useful for you to think about cryptocurrency is that it is a developing, somewhat uncertain space, but nonetheless a very, very important one. The question about whether or not governments will simply take over cryptocurrencies. You know, why isn't it in their interest, if cryptocurrencies are so great, to just steal the ideas or to literally, you know, print fiat money and then buy up all the crypto with it so that they own it? In our last episode, that was a very intriguing question we got from a, from a listener about why don't governments do that? Partly because it's antithetical to government monopoly on issuing money, but also because it's still undeveloped. It needs more time. It needs to kind of grow into what it's going to become. And perhaps the most important piece of that is the question of mass adoption. One of the fundamentals of money is that it's based on trust. You have to trust that someone will accept it and then that you can spend it later for the same amount. And that only happens if enough people have adopted your money. A quick example from history is in colonial times in the early republic of the United States, we didn't have a federally issued dollar. Banks would issue their own money and back it with some amount of gold reserves, and you just had to trust that you could that your money was worth something. But if you went across state lines and they didn't know or recognize your bank or that um, banknote, they wouldn't give you full value for it. It hadn't been adopted by enough people yet. It wasn't being used. And that is something that is plaguing cryptocurrencies right now, is that adoption is still rather slow. The company I work for, Gainesville Coins, they just recently have broken into accepting different cryptocurrencies for payment. We kind of have an edge in that sense, partly because we deal in the crypto space, but also because we're an e-commerce company, largely. So we do have a, a good working familiarity with the internet in general and online transactions. So from our standpoint, cryptocurrency kind of makes it easy. It's, it's a, it, there's not a whole lot of barriers compared to other digital transactions. If you're doing you know, a traditional credit card transaction over the internet, Bitcoin does offer you some advantages, even now, even already. But that's our specific case. As you can pretty plainly see, it's not like you can go to any store around the corner and spend your Bitcoin or your Ethereum or your Ripple. You just can't. Not enough places have adopted it. Even just cashing out, even just trading in or exchanging your crypto for the local currency and then spending it is also not as seamless and as easy as one would hope. It's just not there yet. The infrastructure isn't in place. It's, it used to be so bad that there was a small company in New York City that their whole business model was literally just that they would take your Bitcoin and give you cash for it. <laughs> because that was a service that was needed. Enough people had Bitcoin, but they could not spend it. They had to have someone cash it out for them. So from a convenience standpoint and from a utility standpoint, how useful cryptocurrencies are as money, they are still not there yet. That is the biggest barrier to them becoming a full-fledged alternative currency system to what we have now. And the current kind of landscape, it's still moving slowly. It's, it's not particularly encouraging that recently there was a study done that something like 80 to 90% of Bitcoin trading activity is not actual transactions. It's not people spending their Bitcoin. It is speculative trading. It's people betting on whether the price of Bitcoin will go up or down. 
And frankly, that's the main participants in, in any futures market. It's really speculative. But there are at least actual productive transactions going on. You know, if you're speculating on corn futures or, or hog futures, there's still somebody out there who is picking that corn and delivering it. Not so much the case with Bitcoin trading. There aren't actual items being exchanged for Bitcoin for the most part. So that needs to develop and change for cryptocurrencies to become really a serious contender. Interestingly, maybe the biggest impediment to Bitcoin's mass adoption right now is even though it is digital currency, it's not totally digital yet. And what I mean by that is you can't mine Bitcoin or as far as I know, any cryptocurrency that's mineable without one, having the computer hardware and two, expending electricity. There are some interesting statistics about how expensive the electricity costs are for big mining operations for cryptocurrencies. And at this point, you can't separate Bitcoin from its physical aspect yet. We haven't gotten to that. Now, maybe once all of it has been mined, there is a there is a maximum on how many Bitcoin there will be in the future. It will max out at 21 million. So there will be no more mining after that. But that's just Bitcoin. I'm sure there will be other mineable cryptos that, that continue on. You just have to kind of, it's hard to wrap your mind around, right? We, we've been sold that this is a totally digital currency and it, you know, it's all electronic and that is true. I'm not denying that, but it's easy to lose sight that there is a physical aspect of it that we still haven't moved beyond or can't do without. I mean, you can even compare it one-on-one with gold. The amount of hardware and kind of machinery required to mine each Bitcoin, one Bitcoin, which at the time of recording is around $8,000, is actually heavier and more material than $8,000 worth of gold which is sort of bizarre. It's hard to hard to imagine, but it's true. It's true. The inescapable physical side of Bitcoin is definitely something that kind of holds it back from being mass adopted that way. Because if you want to mine it yourself instead of just going out and buying it or accepting Bitcoin for in exchange for something, you have to make that overhead investment. You have to have the hardware and you have to spend money on electricity to do it. So it does have a real world sort of back end to it. That's why it's called mining. There is sort of a reference there or a similarity with actual mining for resources. It costs money to run the machines. You know, you can't, get over, you can't avoid that. And even if you completely throw out the relative kind of money comparison, okay, let's stop talking about dollars, you're going to have to use electricity to run all this stuff. It's just, it's easy to lose sight of that or, you know, to take that for granted but it's worth considering. I think now I'll take a uh, question from the audience, from one of our listeners, who obviously saw that we teased uh, the topic for this part two because their question from Anonymous here is, are cryptos backed by anything? I like that line of thinking. The short answer is not really. But keep in mind that insofar as a dollar or a euro or a yen or any currency has value, it's not actually backed by anything tangible. The only difference is the level of trust and that the Bank of Japan or the Federal Reserve, or I should say the U.S. Treasury, has a track record with investors in the market and just the general business community that they trust their money. By its nature, because cryptos don't have a centralized issuing authority like that, they don't have that same level of trust yet. 
So they're backed by the same thing as every other money, which is to say almost nothing, promises and trusts. But it's interesting to question that because that gets to the root of how does money work? It'd be much easier to explain, honestly, how money worked if it was backed by something real, if, it was, if we had a gold standard still. I'm not just outright advocating and saying that would be better. I simply think it makes more intuitive sense to the average person. So that's a great one. Great question. That pretty much wraps it up for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate your support, and uh, we hope that you're getting something out of this series of discussions. Our next episode is going to tackle the historical basics of what makes gold valuable. And this is right up my alley, but I also find that it's not well understood by the general public. So uh, we'll get into gold and where gold comes from next time. Uh, Join us again on Breaking the Dollar. And as always, thank you very much. Today's episode was presented by our sponsors, Gainesville Coins. You can find out more at GainesvilleCoins.com. If you enjoyed today's show, we encourage you to go to iTunes and subscribe, leave a review, and leave a rating. The views and opinions expressed on the show are for informational purposes only and should not be used or construed as professional investment advice. 